Good morning. Today we're continuing our uh, series in 1 Samuel. Uh, the message today is going to be on 1 Samuel 9 to 11. And we're going to read a uh, portion of that in preparation of hearing that message in uh, chapter 10. So 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you, out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now you present yourselves before the Lord, by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all of Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He then brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out as he stood among the people, and he was a head taller than all of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all of the people. The people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some of the scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Good morning. It's good to be here again. It's good to uh, open up God's word and look at it again. So let's pray and then we'll uh, look at what God's saying to us. Let's pray together. Um, God, we thank you so much for what we've already been able to celebrate this morning. Um, we thank you that we've been able to celebrate our family and our community together. Uh, we thank you that we've been able to celebrate the cross as we sing and as we pray. And we thank you, God, for all of that good stuff that we've already experienced. Lord, we pray, though, now that as we come before your word, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us, that you would change us, and that you would give us a hope for the future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an article this week, and the article was titled, Religion Could Disappear. Now, the subtext of the article was, by 2041, this guy was saying that religion would be replaced by possessions. Now, the guy that uh, the article was uh, based on, his name was Dr. Nigel Barber, and he uh, is an author of a book called, Why Atheism Will Replace Christianity. Now, this is what the uh, article says about this guy's book. It says this, His book proposes that people do not have to rely on supernatural influences, on God, when material possessions are catering for their need. Religion declines not only because people are becoming richer, but also due to the increasing quality of life, decline of serious diseases, better education, and welfare states. So in 25 years, less than 25 years, God will be a distant memory. Now, I don't know how this sits with you. 
I don't know what your kind of gut reaction to this is when you see something like this or when you see an article like this, but for me, I kind of think that there may be an element of truth to this. I mean, at least that's my vibe when I look around at the people around me and when I see the stats of our country. See, in 2016, we had a census, and uh, we are, as a country, more than ever before, a people who tick no religion. We were up in 2016 to 30% of our country that ticks no religion. That's up 8% of what it was in 2011, which is huge, and that's uh, about 2 million people. Our country is walking, running away from God. Right? You can see where articles like this come from. And then you kind of go closer in, and when you look at Christianity, it actually gets scarier. Because when you look at Christianity, I mean in 1966, we were 88% a Christian nation. That's how many people said they were Christians. Now in the last census, it was less than 50. And when you look closer to churches that actually believe in the God of the Bible and actually believe that we're saved by faith into a relationship with God, those numbers more than half. And so when you read articles like this and you see census like this and you see numbers like these, it's pretty frightening. And so one of the questions that comes up when you see articles like this and when you see numbers like these, one of the questions comes up, what is God going to do about this? Right? Like if God is real and if God exists and if he is truly the God of the universe, what's he going to do when a nation rejects God? If that's the projection, if by 2041 we're done, what's God going to do about this? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a time in history where a nation did walk away from God. We're going to look at 1 Samuel where early on we see in 1 Samuel, this is a moment in history where a whole nation walked away from God. They rejected God. If you were here with us last week, we saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? They want a king like every other nation. They don't want God as their king. Right? Samuel gets upset about it. If you were here last week, God says, brother, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Samuel passes that message on to the people and they say, we know we're rejecting God, but we want a king just like every other nation. So the question is to them and for us, what's God going to do when a nation rejects God? What's God going to do when people are running away from God? Well, to see this, we're going to look at our Bibles and we're going to look at this story in chapter 9 and we're going to go through to chapter 11. But we see how God responds. God doesn't say silent. He doesn't do nothing. God responds and he responds in two ways, which we see from chapter 9. It'll be on the screen or in your Bibles. We pick the story up from verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost, and Kish said to his son, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So in verse 4, they go and look for the donkeys, but they cannot find them. What's God going to do when a nation rejects him? Okay, so that's what's just happened. The verses before this one in chapter 8, the whole nation rejects God. How is God going to respond? Well, he's going to respond in two ways. And we see this first way in these first few verses here, right? The first way that God's going to respond when nations reject him is he's still going to be God. 
right? God is going to continue to be God. Now, this isn't explicitly clear in these first few verses, but it becomes clear once we get to verse 15, right? So we see in this ordinary moment, God is still in control, right? Now, this will unravel for us in verse 15, but let's see these details. So we meet Saul. Now, a couple of things we know about Saul. He's from a tribe called Benjamin. One of the smallest of the tribes of Israel. So he's basically a guy from a small country town. What we know about him, he's tall, a head taller than anyone else. So like eight, nine foot, right? That's the kind of like that's the kind of height that he is. I mean, that's a guess. And what we also know is that he's handsome. Right? He's a good looking lad. So not only is he head taller than everyone else, but he turns a lot of heads as well. Right, he's the type of guy that would fit on The Bachelor. I don't think that he's having a mustache and a curly mullet. I think, I think we'd be happy with him as our bachelor. Our bachelor. I don't watch it <laughs> much. A little bit. But he's a good-looking guy, right? That's what we know about Saul, but he's, kind of, he's from a small country town. Okay, so, so in your head, you've got the picture of Saul. He's kind of this no-named guy from this no-named town. So picture it today, right? In Australia, there are lots of small country towns. You know, we meet these people all the time where they tell us where they're from and we're like, what's that close to? And we don't know until eventually they get to like Dolby, right? This is th those kind of people, right, from the no-name town. So we've got this picture. This guy's from somewhere like Ipswich, right? That, that's, that's where he's from. But he's good looking and he's tall, okay? Now, this is the guy who's front and center in this story and he's going looking for donkeys, but he can't find his donkeys. The poor guy can't find his donkeys, right? They can't find them anywhere. So he keeps looking, he keeps searching, and then eventually we see in verse 5, he says, let's go home, dad's going to be worried about me. Right? So he's good looking, he's tall, and he's a good kid. Cares about what his dad thinks. His dad's worried about him, right? So he says, let's go back, let's do that. But the servant in verse 6 says, look, there's a guy here that might be able to tell us where the donkeys are. He's a man of God. Everything he says comes true. Let's go visit him, and he can tell us where the donkeys are. So as we move through the story, I mean, they stuff around for a little bit. They bump into some locals at verse 11. They tell them where to go. And then finally, in verse 14, they're kind of going up to town. And as they were enter it, there was Samuel coming towards them on the way to the high place. Okay, so this seemingly ordinary event ends in him bumping into Samuel. Now, as we look at this ordinary, mundane event, there's an element here where we just kind of look at it and go, well, God's not really in control of that. Or, or if he is, it's not that obvious, right? Like this, this, this sort of stuff happens all the time. You know, like we bump into people at the shops and our first thought in that moment is not, okay, God was in control of this. Right? Like this just seems ordinary, just seems like this could happen to anyone. It's just a, a good-looking guy looking for some donkeys and bumps into another guy. But what we see as we keep reading is that God responds to his, the nation rejecting him in this first way. He continues to be God because even in this ordinary moment, God is in control. And we see this in verse 15. The day before, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. Verse 16. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. God's people reject him. right? They don't want him as king. 
And yet what we see here is that God is still in control because he says, I will send you this guy called Saul and he's going to be the next ruler. He's going to be this king the people wanted because I've heard their cry. Right now, now he says, I'll send you Saul. Now, as we read it, didn't sound like God was kind of front and center there, does it? I mean, it, Saul didn't get this tap on the shoulder by God where God said, okay, tomorrow, right, go and meet Samuel. That's not how it happened. But what we see is that God was working in the ordinary. God was working in these ordinary, mundane events for this meeting to happen. I mean, the gate could have been closed. The donkeys didn't need to go missing. Saul's dad could have picked a different kid, could have picked a different servant, could have picked two servants to go. Saul could have picked a different servant, and that servant could have not known about the man of God. And then the locals could have you know, not known where Samuel was, or they could have just stopped on the way for a coffee and a toilet break and missed Samuel by five minutes. But it didn't happen like that. God was working in this. He was orchestrating this because God is still in control. Even if a nation rejects him, God will always be still in control because he's God. He's king. He's this Lord of the universe. He will always be in control. And so he hears his people's cries. He's still in control and he sends them this king. Now, now what we see from verse 17 on is basically Samuel telling Saul that you're going to be the next king. Okay, so we see this, verse 19, he says, uh, I'm the prophet you're looking for. Verse 20, he says, the donkeys have been found. And then verse 20 as well says, right, and by the way, you're king. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, Saul left in the morning looking for some donkeys, small, well, tall, humble country lad who's good looking and attractive, right? I mean, lots of girls looked at him that day, but he didn't think that he'd be king by the end of the day. And so when Samuel says, you're going to be king, he replies and says, are you sure you got the right guy? Right? Are you sure? We see that in verse 21. He's like, I'm just a Benjamite. I'm from the smallest tribe of Israel. But then from verse 22 onwards, what we see is that Samuel basically says, this thing's not from me. It's from God. And to prove that, he's going to give him four signs. Four signs to prove that this position of king has not been given lightly. This has been given by God because this is going to be the king that the people want. right? Maybe not the king the people need, but the king the people want. And so to prove this to Saul, that he is the right guy, what we see is that God gives him four signs. Four signs to prove that this thing's from God. The first sign we see in verse 24 onwards, sorry, 22 onwards, that Samuel put aside a bit of meat for him. We don't know if Saul had special dietary needs, but this meat was his and no one else was going to eat the meat. So he basically says, no, 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 this is you, right? I prepared this for you the day before, right? Eat this, it'll be good. First sign. Second sign, we move into chapter 10, right? Uh, Samuel says, the second sign will be today when you leave here, you're going to bump into two men at Rachel's tomb and good news, the donkeys will be found. They know where the donkeys are. That's the second sign. That sign takes place. Third sign gets a little bit stranger. Verse 3, he goes to a great tree of Tabor, meets three men worshipping there. One dude's carrying three goats. One's got three loaves of bread and another skin of wine. Right? I feel like the guy with the three goats has the heavier job there. Give me the wine. They will offer him some bread and he will take the bread. 
Weird sign, but it comes true. Third sign. And then finally, the fourth sign. Verse 5, we see this. 5 to 7, he says, After that, you'll go to the Philistine outpost at Gibeah. There you'll meet some prophets who speak the word of God. They'll be playing lyres and timbrels and pipes and harps and having a good time. And the spirit in verse 6 will come on you powerfully, will change you, and then you will start prophesying with them. Then it says, whatever your hands find to do, do with all your might for God is with you. And what we see then is that fourth sign from verse 9 onwards to verse 12 is fulfilled. Saul goes In verse 9, God changes him from the inside out. He gets the spirit. He believes. He knows. He is a different person now. He goes and prophesies. And then he prophesies so much so that in verse 12, we see it becomes a saying in the town, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, I know often like we just read that and move past it because it's not a big thing. But doesn't it seem a bit strange that it was a saying? Is Saul among the prophets? Like what context are you using that? Is that like, you know, maybe that's um, our version of is the Pope Catholic? You know, like, are you going to watch the Broncos tonight? It's like, is Saul among the prophets? I don't know. It just, it just feels weird. But the point is, everyone knew that Saul was prophesying, right? That, that's the point. And as we see, as we take a step back, what we see with these four signs being fulfilled, God is in control, right? We can see that, can't we? God is in control in the whole thing. God orchestrated Saul to meet Samuel, and then God orchestrated everything to happen in such a way. These four signs happened. The Spirit of God changed Saul. This was a great thing. But what we see is that God is in control. Chapter 8, God's people rejected him. But God did not cease to be God. He's still God, and he's still in control. God's position as God doesn't change or shift depending on people's reaction to him, right? Like, it, I mean, maybe that's common sense. But, but I remember a few years ago having a conversation with a teenager at a camp and uh, asked uh, with these boys in our group, and the question came up. Um, the question was, if people stop believing in God, what happens? And the boy responded. He said, well, I guess he stops being God. Now, I asked him about that and said, okay, so how, you know, how'd you get to that? And he said, well, it's kind of like a teacher. You know, if a teacher doesn't have students, then they kind of stop being a teacher. Now, for some of us teachers here, right, we're like, teaching's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Hopefully it's not offensive. I mean, he was just a teenager, right? But you can kind of see where his logic went. You know, if God doesn't have people, then he kind of ceases to be God. But that's not how it works. God is still God. Even if the whole world stopped believing in God, he wouldn't stop being God. He's the God of the universe, right? He was around before these guys in 1 Samuel, and he was around after they were there. And you can't just reject God and he's going to disappear, right? You can't like ignore God and he's going to vanish. That's not like, that's not what he is. He's the God of the universe. I mean, you can't even kill God, right? And he's going to disappear, And we saw that with Jesus. I mean, when he came along, he did signs and miracles. Even his enemies knew that he was something special, but they killed him to stop the movement. But you can't stop God. You can reject him. You can ignore him. You can even kill him. But you can't stop him. You can't stop God because he's God. He's always going to be God. He's the God who's always going to be in control and always powerful. He will always be the king above all kings. He will always be the ruler above 
all rulers. God will always continue to be God. And so we see in this moment, in this passage, the first way that God responds when a people rejects him, he stays God. He continues to be God. But as we keep reading through this passage, we're going to see the second thing, the second way God responds when a people reject him. And the second way God responds is he continues to save people. God continues to be God, and God continues to save people. And we see this as we start to take a close look of this, at this good-looking lad, Saul, who's now the king of Israel. And as we take a good look at him, a closer look at him, as we take a closer look at him, what we start to see is that he's not all he's cracked up to be. So after verse 13, he prophesies, gets the spirit. It's great. The saying happens. is Saul among the prophets. And then Saul goes home. Well, he goes to the high place first, and then he goes home. And then in verse 14, Saul's uncle asked him, uh, asked him and his servant, where have you been? And he says, looking for donkeys. Then in verse 15, Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Now, just picture this. Right, let's go back one, Bailey. Just picture this. Saul's uncle says to him, tell me what Samuel said to you. Okay, now you're Saul in this moment. Right, you're, you're Saul in this moment. Your uncle sits you down with a cup of tea and says, all right, tell me about your day. Tell me about what Samuel said to you. What are you saying to him? See, if it's me, this is what I'm doing. You'd never believe the day I had. Man, it was insane, right? Started off looking for donkeys. Then some guy gave me some crazy meat. It was delicious. Right, then uh, I prophesied. That was kind of cool. There were these weird guys that gave me some bread. That was cool. Oh, and by the way, I'm now king of Israel. So can you get me another cup of tea? That's what I'm doing. Right? I mean, I'm mentioning the kingdom thing at least. At the very least, I'm talking about that. But how does Saul respond? Well, what does he say? Verse 16, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. And doesn't that just sound weird? Like, why are you talking about the donkeys, brother? You're the king of Israel. It's just strange. Right? It's, it's strange. This is his first move as king of Israel. His first thing that we see him do and he ignores. He doesn't say it. He keeps that to himself. Now, maybe we want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But the problem is, as we keep reading, it just gets weirder and weirder for our friend Saul. So we get into uh, the passage that we had read out today. Samuel, in verse 17 and 18, tells them what God said to them. He said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But now you have rejected your God, who saves you out of your disasters and calamities. And you said, Give us a king. Right, So Samuel gathers them together in verse 20 and 22, and he gathers them together to find a king. And the way that he does this is he gets them, first of all, by tribes, and then he picks them by lot. Now, this is basically like putting their names into a hat. So he puts the tribe names into a hat, right, as all the tribes have gathered in front of him, and then pulls out the tribe of Benjamin. Of course he does, right? I mean, we saw this in the, the previous point. God's in control even of these ordinary moments, Pulls Benjamin's name out of the hat. Okay, tribe of Benjamin. They come down, sit down, pulls the next name out of the hat. It's what? Mizbah or something like that. Matri. Gets their tribe together, you know, that clan together. Pulls the name out of the hat. Gets Saul. Okay? And then, you know, we've got Saul. Now, if we think about it, this is Saul's moment, isn't it? To redeem himself. 
This is his moment to shine, to gather the people together, to empower them. I mean, if the first thing with his uncle was just a small mistake, here is his chance in front of the whole nation to empower them and get them together. I'm now your king. We're going to go defeat the Philistines. We're going to be this boss nation that goes and you know, kills it. This is what we're going to be. It's his chance to redeem himself. But as Samuel reads Saul's name out of the hat, it's like this. Silence. People are looking around for Saul. No one can see Saul. And then God tells them, actually, he's hiding in the supplies. And the picture I have in my head is this nine-foot guy hiding in the groceries. Like he's just got the, the bags over the top of him and, you know, there's oranges and you can tell. You're like, that, that mound in the groceries wasn't there before. But it's there now. Now, I don't know if that's how it took place, but it certainly reads like that. He's just hiding in the supplies. Now, what's he doing in the supplies? Right? Why is he hiding in this moment where he can, his kingship can kind of be celebrated and he can redeem what, what happened before and he can empower his people? Why is he doing this? I think the answer is because as we start to look at this human king, we start to realize that he's not going to be the savior that the people want him to be. right? And so as Saul comes out, they go and get him. The people's reaction, I think, is just as strange as what Saul did hiding in the supplies. They run and bring him. Samuel says in verse 24, Do you see the, Lord, the man the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. At this point, I think I feel like they're going to shout, right? Are you serious? Is this our guy? The guy hiding in the supplies is the king? But instead they, supply, they shout, long live the king. Long live the king. Now again, that, that just feels weird, doesn't it? Their king has been hiding in the supplies. Their king who avoided telling his uncle about the kingship. Now they get him and they're celebrating him and they're saying long live the king. Now, why are they doing this? Well, it's because finally they have a king like every other nation. They have a human king. Finally, they have a guy, a political leader, they think is going to be their savior. They think he's going to make Israel great again. They think he's going to be the guy that's going to deliver them from everything else. This king is going to be the guy. And so finally they have this king and they say, long live this king. It seems weird. It seems strange. But, but there's something about today in our current climate, in our current environment, environment that kind of feels strangely similar to this. I don't know if you've um, witnessed this, but if we think about it for a moment, so countries like ours, if we think about America, right? Like uh, America, if you remember when Barack Obama got uh, voted in to, to be the president, when he got voted in, the internet nearly broke because everyone was so glad that no longer do we have George Bush and now we have a guy who's kind and well-spoken and, you know, I mean, Michelle's great and the kids are great. You know, this guy is going to be the savior, right? Remember that at the start of his campaign, it looked like it was going to be the greatest thing ever. America put their hopes in this new savior. But as time went on, Right? We know what happened. I mean, I, I feel like he barely got in. Right, That may not be true, but I feel like he barely got in in that second stint. And then by the end of eight years, again, the internet nearly broke by how many people were sick of this guy being president. We need a new president. 
We need someone else who will be our saviour, someone else who will deliver, someone different who will actually make a change. And so what did America do? They, they voted someone in who would make America great again. And here, America have their saviour, Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter about his past or what other things. I mean, he's successful, so that's good. Here, they have their saviour who will deliver. He will be the guy that brings through this you know, great country where America will be established at the top of the world. Now, who knows whether this, you know, it's one year in. Who knows whether this will go on and he'll be able to deliver on those promises. But my gut is, and I think history tells us, that no human leader can actually fulfill the pressure of being the country's saviour. But as we look around here in Australia, I think we feel this way too. If we can just get the right leader in place, the right leader will deliver this world, will deliver, will save our country, right? We want this new leader who will at the same time be able to fix the debt and give us jobs. And if they can do that, if we can just get the right guy in place, they'll save that, they'll fix that. We want the right leader who's going to fix the refugee crisis and have a strong stance on immigration. And when we just get the right guy in place, he's going to be able to do all that. We want, the, we want the leader who's going to make good moral decisions and then at the same time somehow unite the country and make all the people happy. And if, they can get, if we can just get the right leader in place, that's going to happen. We're going to have this great country, this great land. And so what we do is we go from one party to the next, liberal, labor, liberal, later. At some point, all of us question, should we try the Greens, right? Maybe at least they'll get rid of the plastic straws. Who knows, right? They might be the leader that we need. And then we go, maybe it'll be the Christian party. And then we go back to liberal. And then within the liberal party, they go to someone else and they go to someone else and Labor gets voted in and gets someone else because everyone's looking for this saviour. Everyone's looking for this political leader who's going to kind of deliver our country and lead us into greatness. But the problem is no human leader will ever deliver on that. No human leader will ever be able to save us and deliver this kind of utopia where our world is perfect and our country is perfect and everyone's skipping to work. It's just not going to happen. But this is what Israel think. They've got this leader who despite what we've seen is weird and strange, they see him and they say, long live the king. This guy is going to do something. This guy is going to deliver on his promises. But as chapter 10 closes out, what we see is that some people are on board and other people aren't on board. They ask the question, some of them, the scoundrels, they're back again from earlier on. They ask the question in verse 27, how can this fellow save us? How can this guy who was hiding in the supplies, how's he going to save us? And then as we see, Saul keeps silence, silent and he finishes the day. As he begins, he goes home. This is, this is the king. This is the king they wanted. And the question posed at the end of chapter, 11, uh, chapter 10, how can this guy save us, then becomes a reality in chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, the Israelites get attacked by this guy called Nahash the Ammonite. The men of Jabesh, in verse 1, say, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. Now, can you see what they're saying? Right? Deliver us, make a treaty with us, and you'll be our king. Right? Now, isn't that just messed up? They, they just got a king, and now they're saying to Nahash, if you kind of save us, we'll be, you, know, you can be our king and we'll be your people. 
But they say in verse 3, the elders gathered together and say, give us seven days. Oh, sorry, verse 2, let's go there. Then, then Nahash replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the one condition that I, that I gouge out your right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Right? I, sounds brutal, is brutal, and kind of, it's not just like this would hurt, this would bring shame on their nation. And uh, for them, they would fight, they'd have this shield that they'd fight with, and it would cover their left eye. And so they could basically see with their right eye in battle. And this move by Nahash is taking their dignity away, but also meaning they can't fight. And so this is kind of, they say, make a treaty. He says, I'll do it, you know, but I'm going to take your right eye. And then in verse 3, the elders gather around to, to discuss it. And they say, give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now, now, can you see what the elders are doing in this moment? They're, they're kind of gathering together, questioning, right? Wondering, is this thing going to happen? They're discussing it. I mean, do we want to get our right eye plucked out or should we just die? Kind of discussions that. But, but this is where they are, right? They're facing destruction. They send some people out to be sure, but they don't know. Now, the question we have to ask at this point is, where is the king? Where's Saul? Where's the guy that they thought would deliver him, that would deliver this nation? Where's this guy that God gave them who, who should be protecting them? Well, in verse 4 and 5, what we see when the messengers go out is they find Saul. Where? Verse 5, returning from the fields behind his oxen. The one positives of that verse is that at least he's let the donkeys go. But beyond that, no positives in what Saul's doing there. You don't want your king in the field with the oxen. right? That's not where kings should be. You need your king to lead your country, to protect your country, to empower and enable your people. Saul is in the field. And when these messengers come, I mean, you could just hear it in his voice. like, what's wrong with everyone? Why are you all crying? You can just feel it. He's clueless here. And so again, we're left with the question, okay, here's the king, but who's going to save this people? But see, if we saw when a nation rejects God, the first way that he responds is by still being God, by still being in control. The second way God responds is by continuing to save people. God doesn't give up on them because they rejected him. And so God moves. And what we see from verse 6 onwards is that God begins to save his people. Saul hears their words. The Spirit of God comes powerfully on him. He sends a message throughout Israel, and then the terror of the Lord falls on the people. So God is empowering the leader and empowering the people. And so they go out and fight until there is none left. Right? They get to keep their right eyes, and they live to tell another day they win the battle. Now, as we see this story, as we see this battle take place, it's clear to us, isn't it? God saved them. The king didn't do it. God did it. I mean, even the king admits that. We see that in verse 13. He says, Today the Lord has rescued Israel, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler above all rulers. He is the one who delivered us. God continues to save Despite what we saw in chapter 8 and the reminder again in chapter 10, this people rejected God. God continues to save. 
And what God does in this moment is he sets up a pattern that continues throughout history where God continues to save people who reject him. I mean, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they didn't want him as king. They mocked him for being king. They crushed those thorns into his head. They put that sign above him that said, King of the Jews. They spat at him and said, Save us and save yourself. If you are king, get yourself down from that cross. But what they didn't know is what we do. One, you can't stop God. And two, in that moment, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was literally saving his enemies. Jesus died in that moment to take their punishment for their rejection of God. He died in that moment to take their sin on his shoulders. He died to save his enemies. And so what we see when a nation rejects God is one, God continues to be God, and two, God continues to save. And so as we sit here in a a country where more than ever the people around us have stopped believing in God, where it seems like statistics say it feels like this, more articles, the vibe is more than ever that people have stopped and aren't interested in the message of the Bible or in what God has to offer them. We sit here not hopeless. We sit here knowing something bigger and something better, and it's one, God is still in control, and two, God saves. And so what this means for us is two things practically. The first thing is we know where we can find salvation. Jesus saves. No one else saves. No political leader is going to deliver on their promise. right? It will always get to the end of their term and we will always be longing for something better. Always. They can't save. No riches can save. Possessions fade and fall away. I mean, that article is crazy. We'll replace God with possessions. It might be true practically, but those possessions will fade and fall and won't even outlast the next 10 years. Nothing will save in this world. But what we know is that even if a nation rejects God, he still saves. And in Jesus, we find a king and a ruler who will save. And when we come to him, he does save. When we trust in him, we find an answer to every problem that we have, an answer to sickness and suffering and death, an answer to meaningless and hopelessness. We find everything at the foot of the cross where we see a king who was not stopped and died to save. And when we trust in him, we can find that and enjoy that and live in that. That's the first practical thing this means. But the second thing that this means is here in this nation, as we join together in a church, when we hear articles and we see numbers like this, we don't lose hope. We know God is working. We know God is saving. And we look up beyond the numbers and beyond the stats and beyond the loud people. And what we see is that this is actively, presently true right now in this world. That God is still in control and he's still saving people. And if we can just for a moment look outside of these numbers, what we see is that this is happening. So a few places where this is happening. If we look in a country like China, 50 years ago in China, there were one million Christians. A nation that looks like they reject God. They don't want anything to do with God. In 50 years' time, articles today estimate between 50 and 70 million Christians in a nation where it's illegal. God is in control of China, not the Chinese government, and he still is saving in China, and people are coming to faith. We look in Africa 
continent of Africa. In 1900, there's about 120 million uh, people in Africa. Of that, the estimate was 9 million Christians. Looks like a nation that rejects God, doesn't want anything to do with God. In the next 100 years, by, uh, by the year 2000, what we see is that, sure, the population grew, but the number of Christians was 233 million people. 233 million people. Now, they reckon, right, if current trends, because what happened after the year 2000 is that Christianity continued to boom. Why? Because God's still in control and God's still saving people. And they reckon as of today, if the current trends continue by 2025, right? So let's forget 2041. There's a more important date, 2025. They reckon if the Christian trends continue in Africa, 633 million Christians. From 1 million 118 years ago, well, it'll be 125 years ago, in 2025, 633 million people. Man, are you seeing this? Like God's still in control, right? He's not afraid of some article. He's not scared of some numbers. God is still working. I mean, in Algeria alone, in 2015 alone, 350,000 people converted from Islam to Christianity. Man, we don't lose hope when we see stuff like this. We don't give up. We're not afraid of stuff like this. We know who our God is, and we know what he does when a nation rejects him. He stays God, and he keeps saving people. And he does this here in Australia as well. I mean, we hear often of churches where hundreds of people are, people are baptized each year. There's, there's a church around the corner. 25 people each year are baptized and become Christians. And this happens here in our church. I mean, we've got story after story of youth kids and people who come into church that don't know Christ and get saved by Jesus. God is still in control and God is saving people and we have room for hope. Right? And so when we hold on to our vision, right? when we build a building like this and we want to see it full time and time over and over and over, we want to see thousands of people saved. We don't do this because it's the trendy thing to do. And we don't do this like out of fear. Right? We're not afraid of statistics or articles. We do this expecting God to do this because he's still in control and he still saves people. Man, how exciting is it to watch this place in the next few years? can't wait to hear the stories of how God is doing stuff here in Australia. Because we know even if this, rejects, this nation rejects him, still in control, still saves. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we don't lose hope. We thank you that we know something bigger and something better, and that it is, Jesus, the fact that you died and you rose again. You were not stopped. You are king, and you're in control, and you keep saving people. God, we ask that you would fire us up for what you're doing in this world. We pray that we would run to the cross and first find salvation and then run to our world knowing that you're in control and knowing that you're saving people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.